Fulbright Global Scholar uh, right now and is uh, normally Professor of Political Science at Montclair State University uh, in New Jersey and Senior Research Scholar at the Weatherhead East Asian Institute at Columbia University. Uh, she's going to be presenting on Putin and Xi, Ice Cream Buddies and Tandem Strongmen, uh, which is a, an entertaining story. If you haven't read the, the policy memo, I would encourage you to do so. Um, to her left is Stephen Kaplan, uh, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at George Washington University uh, and Global Fellow at the Wilson Center here in Washington. And I should also add a very funny improv comic uh, <laughs> who I long ago shared the stage with. Um, he's going to present on uh, Chinese and Russian creditors in Venezuela, oil collapse, and political survival. Uh, after each of our panelists give their presentation, we'll have commentary on the research by our own Jonathan Hillman, uh, who is a senior fellow here at CSIS uh, and the director of the Reconnecting Asia Project, which uh, if you haven't checked out, I would really encourage you to do so. Um, it's a wonderful interactive microsite that uh, really tries to drill down and provide visuals and analysis of what uh, Chinese and other uh, investment projects in Central Asia and Eurasia more broadly actually look like and, and what the significance of them are. Um, and then after John has done his, his commentary, we'll open the floor up to questions. So please uh, silence your cell phones. Um, and uh, with that, I'll turn... By example. Yes, exactly. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Um, and so with that, um, let me turn the floor over to Hillary Apple. Thank you. Thank you so much to everyone here. I want to thank CSIS. This is a beautiful, a beautiful space. I haven't been to this this uh, location. It's just beautiful, and it's just a pleasure to be back at Ponars as well to speak about this uh, really important topic right now. This question about the relationship between China and Russia has been receiving quite a bit of attention, uh, and it's been intentional in the sense that uh, the attention is explicit. There have been these ostentatious displays of friendship, which I think we'll hear more about in a moment, but certainly in the last year, you can see a wide array of images to capture our attention and our imagination about how these two leaders have a very special personal relationship and all of the images to, to, and awards and celebrations to, to help solidify that in our minds. But I would also say that despite all the photo ops, there are so many different areas well beyond um, this kind of grandstanding that show this rapprochement or this relationship has been um, tightening in recent times. Certainly as the United States pulls away uh, from China and its current trade wars and continues and extends the, the sanction regime on 700 companies and individuals on Russia that began after the war in uh, Ukraine, we can see that in that context of strategic uh, competition, Russia and China have good reason to look for new areas of collaboration and cooperation. So what I want to talk about today is to go uh, a little bit into some of the areas where we see increased economic and military cooperation, and then ask the question of whether or not this uh, partnership that we're seeing is really, a, a, as many have described it, a, a matter of convenience, or whether there's some basis for a deeper and longer lasting realignment of great power politics where we can see an enduring closeness which is new in some sense from what we've experienced from much of the 20th century between Russia and China. And then I want to talk a little bit about some of the potential hurdles or stumbling blocks we might come across which could question, could raise the question of whether this is an enduring uh, realignment and rapprochement. 
and then conclude with some of the ways I feel that actually we can see due to similar norms and interests and worldviews, we can actually expect um, an enduring rapprochement between these two leaders in these two countries. So there are many things you could point to. We certainly have lots of screens here. There's over a timeline where uh, in multiple areas there's intensified uh, relationships between these countries. If you want to break them down by um, area in terms of economic cooperation, certainly there's been increased trade levels. Russia pursued this very actively following uh, the uh, sanction regime and the self-imposed uh, boycott on Western goods. As a result of that, the the level of trade has increased significantly over 20% in 2018, and we'll see where it is for 2019, but it continues to grow. China is the largest trade partner for Russia, and certainly the largest source of foreign direct investment. But it's not all one-sided. Russia has been an important supplier of hydrocarbons for China, and it has become the greatest supplier of crude oil, electricity imports, and also arms imports since the last two or three years. And we have seen this deliberate attempt to uh, nurture and to improve this relationship through free trade agreements and uh, cooperative agreements between the Eurasian Economic Union and uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and trying to find common ground for those two countries. And then again, we see massive investments in part through the Belt and Road Initiative, but also through efforts to secure China's access to oil and gas in the future, including this really remarkable $400 billion investment in this new gas pipeline, the power of Siberia, which has been moving apace. So in fact, it's not just a matter of images, although there is plenty of that. There's also important areas of uh, economic um, integration going on between these two economies. We can also see areas in terms of the military and levels of cooperation there. There have been um, I'll get back to this in a moment, but there have been a period where Russia was really hesitant to uh, sell to China its most advanced technologies. But in fact, this has changed in recent years, certainly since the war in Ukraine, where Russia has been willing to, to sell China its most advanced fighter jets, surface-to-air missiles, and submarines after a, a long period of resistance for fear of um, uh, losing market share should those, uh, should those technologies be reproduced and re-engineered and sold um, in international markets. So this has also changed. There have also been pretty well-publicized efforts of joint military exercises, naval exercises, and not just in the Sea of Japan, for example, but also in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, this is a little bit different because, in fact, that's pretty far out of uh, China's sort of normal sort of sphere of interest, and yet they've been very uh, um, ostentatious in that sense as well, to make sure they're capturing the attention. And much was made, much ado was made in terms of China's participation in the Vostok military exercises in the summer of 2018. They sent 3,000 troops. Now, some of the numbers of the troop levels in that exercise have been questioned, but certainly it's a significant uh, symbolic change because the Vostok exercises traditionally were seen as a way for Russia to advance its preparedness for um, vulnerabilities resulting from China. So to include China in that exercise uh, was given a lot of attention and very significant. So there are many areas besides the dumpling diplomacy we're seeing 
Um, and yet, uh, there, are, there are reasons why we might be a little skeptical. Certainly, there are reasons why we've had traditionally um, a, a lot of tensions between Russia and China. Um, and I think the most significant is the rivalry in Central Asia. And because it's so significant, I'll, I'll return to that. And of course, we have a whole panel, right, after this one on Central Asia for that reason. It's so important in the Chinese-Russian uh, relationship. But let me just mention a few other brief ones before I return to Central Asia. Uh, there have been tensions over the border. Certainly, this has been true for a very long time. These have been resolved since 2005. There was a, a border skirmish, a small war in 1969. Even though I don't, I think the biggest concern are the tensions that come from shuttle traders and migration. It's a result of sort of very disproportionate concentrations of populations north and south of the Amur River, where there are estimates of about 6 million Russians, but uh, well over 100 million Chinese south of the river. So this creates tensions and anxieties, which you used to hear quite a bit about in the Russian press, and much less uh, than used to be the case. So certainly the control of a, of a narrative has been something that has been given some attention to uh, diminish those tensions. You also see another area for potential tensions going forward in this relationship could be related to this race for the Arctic sea routes. This is something that both Russia and China have a keen interest in advancing their, um, their concerns and their preferences. For China, this could reduce the uh, transit time by 13 days to get goods to, to northern Europe from China. And for Russia, this is an important possibility for collecting rents in the Arctic should the polar ice caps melt further, extending the period of time when this is a possible commercial sea route for uh, Chinese goods. So this is an area where you could expect could potentially be an area of tension. But for now, China has been welcomed as um, an observer in important organizations of Arctic organizations that Russia has been extremely active. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, we might anticipate a stumbling block or a hurdle going forward related to um, weapons. There were accusations of China reverse engineering uh, Russian technology, and this was uh, the reason why it was cut off for so long. Uh, this has been changed now, you know, multi-billion dollar worth of uh, weapon deals have gone through, uh, in part because Russia is in need of capital after the sanctions regime. So this has been an important source of income. But in the future, should they find that they're losing market share when these uh, technologies are reproduced and uh, sold, this could be an area for tension. But in truth, the area that seems most um, prominent in my own thinking is this rivalry in Central Asia, which uh, for now has been explicitly, uh, I would say, downplayed by both sides, because it certainly is something you could expect with the Belt and Road Initiative, creating all sorts of uh, competitions in the regions and questions about whether Russia will be losing influence in one of its traditional spheres of influence and one of its own self-proclaimed you know, special areas. Um, so this is because uh, for such a long time, certainly in the Soviet period when these were all one country, but uh, even in the post-Soviet period, Russia remained the dominant actor. Elites had more identification with Russia than with China. Um, there, there has been a, a real shift in terms of economic activity toward China. China is the number one foreign direct investor for quite some time in Central Asia. And it's also, um, it's not only that the scope of these investments are so significant, it's also that 
they're going to shape commerce going forward. The fact that China is positioning itself as a hub of commerce and influencing the development of uh, transportation, of railway lines, of roads, of um, uh, pipelines, all of this is really significant for future economic activity. It's actually either, in some people's minds, a very brilliant strategy, a way to deal with its enormous capital reserves, or a potential for creating resentments in the region and uh, having um, enormous number of non-performing loans uh, through investments that won't get repaid. So it's not clear whether the strategy will pay off in Central Asia in the long run, sphere, previous sphere of in influence. And so for me, there's something I could anticipate happening if Russia were able to be stronger. But just like Russia was weaker in the 1990s and unable to influence the growing Western uh, between the U.S. sensitive reorientation of Yes, and thank you, I believe. China and Russia is, is, uh, has a lot of bearing on what goes on in terms of reconnecting Asia. Um, so I'm going to begin where, where Hillary just ended, with, uh, with the enduring partnership. Uh, I share that viewpoint. I see the China-Russia partnership as strategic and having a normative basis, um, as she explained. Uh, I just came back from four months in Shanghai and a month in Vladivostok, and uh, I encountered many unexpected and surprising viewpoints about China-Russia relations, which helped me to uh, reassess a bit how I understand this relationship. And I think if we're, we're still discussing this issue, marriage of convenience or alliance, um, it's because when, when analysts look at this relationship, we often uh, focus on one level or another, or one dimension or another of this relationship, and we speak to one set of people but not other people. And uh, I think um, the, the, the partnership looks different depending on what level you're focusing on. Um, and so I'm going to begin with the, with the personalities, with Xi Jinping and, and Putin, and the astonishing cordiality they seem to demonstrate uh, in their interpersonal ties, or at least try to uh, highlight for others. Um, they have met nearly 30 times, and uh, they have personally expressed a high degree of mutual support for one another in terms of attending uh, various uh, ceremonies, World War II ending ceremonies that many Western leaders avoided for various reasons. Uh, they gave each other top awards. Uh, but but well, what I began with in, in my memo, which will be published uh, down the road, is the, the personal meetings that they seem to have, the personal moments where Xi Jinping teaches Putin how to make steam buns, and uh, Putin gives um, Xi Jinping, his favorite ice cream, uh, iceberry Russian ice cream on two different occasions. They celebrate their birthdays together and they, and they uh, wax eloquent in the media about how much their friendship means uh, to, uh, to them. Um, and so uh, at breakfast, Andrew uh, Barnes, my colleague, were, and I were talking about this um, and he suggested I call this soft serve diplomacy. <laughs> um, as, so I, I think this this personal element is is different and unexpected, um, and it 
help me uh, formulate the question, what do they what do they talk about in these ice cream soirees, or what do they learn from one another? And I think there is some mutual learning that we can see um, in, in their interactions. Um, for example, if we look at um, anti-corruption uh, activities, I mean, both Russia and China have serious corruption problems. Um, in two, 2014, you see uh, Russia uh, requiring officials to declare their offshore assets. In, in China, which is also in the midst of an anti-corruption uh, drive, 2017, China passes a similar law. Um, in Russia in 2012, NGOs have to register as foreign agents if they want foreign funding. In China, similar laws passed in 2017. Um, and, and so I, I think that, that, that Xi Jinping is looking at what some of the tactics that Russia and Putin have used in trying to, um, to, um, to cement his authoritarian rule. And uh, Xi Jinping also appreciates Putin's high profile style of leadership. In China, Putin is very popular as a leader. There are lots of books about him in Chinese bookstores, and, and people admire Putin because he's a man of action, as opposed to the, the very scripted behavior of, of Chinese leaders. And we see Xi Jinping breaking away from uh, Deng Xiaoping's mold of leadership where you focus on domestic issues and you don't act too assertively. Um, I don't think China would want to act as assertively as, as Russia in, 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 or along the same lines, but this, the leadership model, I think, has some appeal. Um, similarly, we see Putin learning from Xi Jinping how to control the internet. Uh, the Great Firewall of China um, is of interest to Putin, who is, uh, who, um, is seeking to enhance uh, state controls over the internet space. Uh, we saw Putin in March 2018 give a speech where he talks about building the Russia we all dream about. And this, of course, is building on the, the China dream that Xi Jinping has often discussed. And I think also, together, they have created a, a normative basis for their partnership um, in terms of both supporting plans at the UN for digital sovereignty, for example, uh, creating alternate norms for managing the information space. And we see them using similar tactics in their own neighborhoods in terms of their incrementalism um, in how to project power abroad. Uh, our colleague uh, Corneli from Georgia didn't make it to this meeting, but he talked about Russia's borderization strategy, how Russia expanded um, its borders at the expense of Georgia. And in, with respect to China and the South China Sea, we often talked about a cabbage strategy where disputed islands are wrapped in layers of fishing boats and Coast Guard vessels and so on to, uh, to enhance uh, China's uh, control in that neighborhood. Uh, disinformation. We see both Russia and China using disinformation and influence campaigns overseas. Russia in the U.S. and Europe, and China in Australia, Taiwan, and other places. Um, so I think the personal interaction um, 
um, has led to some mutual learning, as well as solidifying their, uh, their strategic partnership. Um, and it also um, helps bond together their shared views of domestic and global governance. So this being said, despite all of the ice cream uh, the ice cream activities and bun making and the shared viewpoints and, and um, the mutual learning, the flip side of personalism is that uh, political, the political centers in each country control the relationship. And this was very striking to me when I was in Vladivostok, how little, little regional content there was um, in an area that was adjacent to China. Um, and that what, what uh, uh, motivates the relationship are the politicians in Moscow and Beijing and the state-owned enterprises that support them. Um, in energy, in military, even in agriculture and finance. And so you have very weak transborder integration and partly this has to do with weak support by each country for regional governments and regional development. Um, and also has to do with complicated regional politics. Uh, one example of this was the failure of a Chinese company to uh, move forward with a water bottling project in uh, Lake Baikal in Siberia that attracted so much opposition that people were uh, sending petitions to Putin opposing it, and this was a deal that had been in the works for many years. Um, and I think uh, in the Russian border regions, we have uh, interest in working with China, but not just China, also with Japan and South Korea. And in the Chinese uh, border regions, there's, there's interest in working with other regions of Russia, like the northwest of Russia or the Volga region that might be um, in a better economic position. And as Hillary mentioned, strong ties between the leaders and the two centers don't always trickle down to regional interests. Um, Central Asia, we heard about also the Arctic is an area where we have some differences of interest between China and Russia and also in their policies towards the United States, we don't always see identical uh, interests and goals. Um, but so what do we conclude of, from all of this? Uh, how do we weigh the, the weak regional ties, the differences that they experience in, their, in working in, in other areas like Central Asia and the Arctic? Um, I think for, for, for now, the strong top-level support for the Sino-Russian partnership uh, implemented through the state-owned enterprises and the priority they both set to um, certain normative goals um, really cements the partnership together. And the differences that they have in, in areas like Central Asia and the Arctic are not enough to derail this. Um, so, but often we hear that this is an asymmetric partnership and it is likely to be unstable because of that. Uh, one Chinese colleague said that this is it's not unequal but asymmetric and that means that the two can find complementary interests. Um, but asymmetry 
uh, asymmetry is a difficult uh, situation to manage too. And China can't always dominate, even though China might have more economic power. Uh, Russia has proven that it has obstructive and destructive power in many ways. And so Russia can withhold certain goods, for example, in the Arctic, or impede China in Central Asia, as some Chinese colleagues have suggested. And also, China has vulnerabilities of its own. Um, so I, I think that it, this is a strategic and normative partnership, um, but an asymmetric one. And it will be interesting to see how the two countries continue to interact within these parameters. OK, great. Thank you. Steve. Excellent. Help is on the way. Best uh, for me right now. <laughs> but anyway, then, uh, looking, uh, basically my goal here today is to look at an out-of-sample case uh, that's far from home uh, for both these countries to raise the question, to what extent do they really share this norm or value of kind of pushing against uh, the current economic system? And might, be there, might there be some variation uh, between these two powers. So just click, click right on this Still thing. not me. Let's see. <laughs> oh, it's, not, it's not yours? No. Okay. Here. I have. Always oh, come with a pen drive. Yeah, <laughs> always be prepared. Venezuela, uh, what I've tried to look at is some of the differences between China and Venezuela's, uh, China and Russia's approach uh, within Venezuela. So if we go to the, to the beginning, the other way, there we go, there we go, all the way, yep. All right. 
one forward. There we go. All right. So the tale of two creditors, uh, China and Russia's investments in the developing world. Uh, what can we learn about China and Russia when we look at out of sample cases within other regions? Right. Do we see the same themes and the same cooperation between China and Russia? Or might there be fissures that other developing countries could try to exploit? Right. To some extent, uh, we've seen Venezuela do that uh, uh, recently. Uh, so first, in the world of finance, right, one thing uh, that's certainly important to underscore is that Russia is not China, right? We've already heard, right, through Hillary's presentation earlier about the difference in terms of uh, economic uh, influence and power of uh, China relative to Russia. And you can see here, this data comes from the Bank of International Settlements, uh, basically your global central bank that keeps data on all banking activity internationally. And you can see the difference since the 2008 financial crisis, where effectively, you know, you have a withdrawal from Germany, uh, United States, United Kingdom in terms of their financing globally after the crisis. It's starting to come back to some extent within the United States. But you see the big climb in terms of overseas financial activity of China, right? And this is the big story. Of course, in a place like Venezuela, Russia sees China doing this, right? Able to exert influence uh, in the Western Hemisphere uh, and says, okay, to what extent might Russia be able to do something similar? But an important thing to keep in mind, I think, as we ask this question, how do the two approach the international system, is look at this difference, right? Russia is basically, in terms of overseas financing, comparable to where Brazil is, right? So to some extent, a rising future power but in no way equivalent to the kind of financial flows we've seen from China internationally. China is now one of the top five bank creditors internationally. Uh, you can also see this in terms of global banking networks. Uh, the share of countries in the world uh, reporting to the BIS, uh, what percentage of those countries uh, do China and Russia have banking operations in? You can see China also has a lot larger banking operations globally uh, than Russia as well. Um, this is also interesting. When you look at, this comes from uh, the Russian Central Bank, uh, the Central Bank of the Russian Federation. Total Russian bank loans to Eurasia are about $13 billion. If we look at just the China Development Bank, no other bank within China, but just the China Development Bank, and look at what it has extended to Eurasia, it's about $36 billion. Of course, that does include uh, Russia to some extent, but even if we back Russia out of that, you're at about a $10 billion figure, pretty close to the level that all Russian banks have within the region, and that's just the China Development Bank, right? Not accounting for China Export-Import Bank, uh, the top four commercial banks, all these other players. Uh, this is just the breakdown in this graph of Russian bank loans to Eurasia, for those of you who are interested, uh, mostly going to Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus. So we can ask the question, how does their approach to finance compare in the developing world, right? Do we just see sort of an attempt to upend the current economic order, or are there differences between these two powers? Uh, so first of all, China and Russia's investments tend to share a long-term horizon, but I would say that their foreign policy aims, and particularly their foreign economic policy aims, are quite different. Uh, Russia, uh, oftentimes, particularly within Venezuela, appears more willing to challenge the United States, finding a target country where it could use its financing to make a broader geopolitical point, right? Comparatively, China has, at this point, a large financial economic stake in the current economic order, right? So yes, maybe it wants to challenge the United States, but I would say 
what the two have in common is more commitment to multilateralism. I think China likes the current economic system, just wants to be able to forge, uh, have a greater influence in the rules of the game. And China also, compared to Russia, has a soft power image oriented towards development, south-to-south -south cooperation, and being a defender right, of sort of uh, liberal status quo. They're trying to project this kind of image where I think comparatively Russia's more apt rhetorically from what I can understand, you're all the experts, not me, but trying to uh, project rhetorically more of a commitment to trying to upend that system. So what I wanna do then is now look at Chinese financing in Latin America, in a place like Venezuela, and look at the kind of effect it is having, right? Because I think not only is it important to compare what China and Russia are doing internationally, but then think about what's happening in developing countries, right? To really try to measure the extent of influence or effect uh, that China may be having. So I'm gonna walk with you through the China case, uh, which is part of a broader book project about the rise of China in the Western Hemisphere, but also trying to make some stylized points in my analysis relative to Russia, which of course uh, I'm learning about as I go along as well. Okay, so first, in terms of China, uh, a big feature of their lending, uh, which they have in common right, with Russia, right? they both sort of, uh, in their cooperation, have pronounced a commitment to non-intervention. Uh, and unlike Western stringent policy conditionality, uh, Chinese investors tend not to impose onerous conditions. Uh, effectively, they have a commitment to non-intervention. So you could ask the question, right? if you're lending to uh, a debtor abroad, to a borrower abroad, how do you ensure you get repaid? Right? Part of policy conditionality from a Western standpoint, things like budget discipline, uh, transparency, privatization, all these different concepts, deregulation, part of it is oriented towards sort of a, an ideology, but part of it is also oriented towards getting repaid. Right? If you have budget discipline, if you keep your macro house in order, you're more likely to repay your debtors. So if you don't have this, how do you get repaid? Right? So what we see China doing as it expands its financial stake is using commercial ties in order to hedge against this risk. So one thing we've seen, a tool that China uses quite frequently, is oil for loan contracts. So essentially what China will do is say, okay, we'll lend state to state to a central government, but in exchange for that, the state oil company will send oil shipments to Chinese importers, will then take the proceeds of those oil shipments and repay the debt. So effectively, the debt is collateralized through oil. Uh, so we see a commitment to these kind of tools from China uh, and other tools as well, such as guaranteed contracts with Chinese firms, uh, buying Chinese machinery, all's a way to try and expand the web of Chinese ties internationally, right? We see financially this pie is growing, and in addition to this pie growing financially, what China ultimately is trying to do is drive these other things, right? FDI, trade, Essentially, when you think of classical economics from the Western standpoint, we look at land, labor, capital. These are the ways that we spur economic activity. Essentially, to some extent, China adds infrastructure. Right? They believe if you invest in infrastructure, that can spur economic activity. Right? So the idea is that you have these big policy banks who are lending in infrastructure finance, and maybe that can catalyze trade and investment flows ultimately. Uh, so, some of the other features of Chinese finance right, are basically a long-term maturity, as we talked about, but also a high risk tolerance, right? Where the West, if there's an economic downturn, <laughs> money tends to flow out, right, of developing countries. 
uh, and because of the uncertainty, right? Think of a place like Argentina today. Uh, there was electoral uncertainty and the capital all flew out, creating lots of volatility. Comparatively, when there are these volatile periods, China has used that as an opportunity to come in and purchase cheap assets and try to grow market share over time. So rather than judging profitability just based upon one firm, China tends to use this banking in order to create markets, grow markets. Um, so that's a big difference from what we've seen from Western financing historically. And in fact, what you can see is in a place like Brazil, every time there's sort of an economic downturn, this is foreign direct investment of China, China tends to come in and buy assets, right? So then the question is, what, why, why do we care about this? Why, even as a group of Russian experts, right, why should you possibly care about what China's doing in Venezuela? It's a good example right, for the kind of influence um, economically that China can have in the region, and given its scale, is able to uh, essentially increase the degrees of maneuverability that developing countries have. Uh, so then the question is, comparatively, uh, what is Russia doing, right? So, first, if we look at China's influence right here, uh, effectively, China's lending to the region is in blue. And we see budgetary surplus his historically in a lot of developing countries in Latin America, including Venezuela. But as soon as you have the financial crisis, when China starts lending to the region, you start getting a lot greater uh, deficits. Essentially, the size of the state starts to increase. Uh, it's not as though China is saying you need to increase the size of the state, but China is giving countries the flexibility to increase the size of the state and to dedicate to sort of the political uh, prerogatives of the countries that China is lending to. So in that way, it frees countries from the classic Washington census, frees countries from neoliberalism, right? So uh, even though it's not direct, China is able to have this kind of influence uh, within the region. Uh, we can also see this statistically, just very, very quickly. Uh, these are stylized points. You get a budget surplus with very low levels of Chinese financing here. As Chinese financing increases over time, your deficit starts to widen. Uh, we also see this general pattern coming through here with a negative budget balance or deficits, the more Chinese financing that countries have. Right? So this is sort of, in the economic realm, a way that Chinese financing can affect uh, the pathway of developing countries. Uh, very quickly, just looking at the Venezuela case, you can see right here, the dotted line is Western banking decreasing going into the global financial crisis. Comparatively, the black line is an increase in Chinese loans, and the gray line shows this widening of deficits. Um, so what China's had to do in a case like Venezuela, as economically Venezuela has not produced the way China thought, uh, oil production has fallen over time rather than increased. So everything they've secured the loans for, right, uh, essentially they don't have enough oil to pay back the loans. So what we've seen China do is actually try to withdraw from this lending relationship. Right? Um, so effectively when we look at China's Venezuelan relations, uh, not only are they trying to hedge economically as we just talked about, but even politically. Right? And, there, and we open with the geopolitical question. What they're doing is very different from Russia to some extent, right? They're trying to brandish this non-intervention image, because don't forget, they have lots of business elsewhere in Latin America. So even in Venezuela, historically over time, you know, they've met with the opposition uh, during the 2012 presidential elections, 2015 parliamentary elections. They're kind of always trying to hedge politically, 
in case there's a political turnover, they can protect their commercial position. Uh, we've even seen China send humanitarian aid to the Maduro regime, uh, but refrain from buying oil related to the sanctions against US-based Citgo, right? So geopolitically, we actually see a difference between what China's doing in Venezuela and what Russia's doing in Venezuela. So comparatively, the cornerstone of Russian relationship in Venezuela is military relations, right? They bought more than $4 billion in Russian arms and military equipment, and they've helped Venezuela avoid the international sanctions that's been placed upon it, helping them sell gold uh, to places like Uganda, United Arab Emirates, and Turkey. Um, and when we look at the economic ties, when those economic ties began is far different from when the economic ties for China began, right? China initially was making a play from an oil perspective, trying to gain market share in the energy sector through the use of these loans as we've talked about. Once things start going awry in Venezuela from about 2013, 2014 with the commodity correction, we see China trying to pull out, right? Unwind all these financial ties. They even go into a debt moratorium in 2016 with Venezuela. Comparatively, Russia comes in in 2015, once uh, Venezuela's already in dire economic straits and starts lending at that point, showing it's not just commercial, it's also geopolitical. Um, and so we've seen, you know, to some extent, Russia trying to increase its commercial ties within Venezuela from a long-term perspective. When they lend, they can get equity in exchange for this lending in key oil fields within Venezuela. But there's also sort of this geopolitical element of challenging or trying to upend the United States in its hemisphere. Uh, so there's a lot more interaction between the geopolitical challenge and Russia's commercial interests. That being said, looking at sort of Russian, you know, the, the court battles over Sitco, US sanctions on Rosneft, all these different things going on in Venezuela are starting to weigh on Russia. So notwithstanding the talk uh, that we've seen over the course of the last year, they've also been unwinding financially, sort of following China's lead. Reportedly now, what was $6 billion outstanding initially in loans is only about $1.8 billion today. Uh, we also see Russia this summer uh, tacitly supporting negotiations between Maduro and Guaido. Uh, the idea is that they want a negotiated settlement, just not on Washington's terms, uh, but rather their own terms, and they want to make sure that their ties with the military are not <laughs> uh, sort of uh, jeopardized at all. Uh, so I'm going to show you a few graphs about debt, and then we'll tie things up. But when you think of the context in the case study of Venezuela as well, oftentimes China and Russia are tied together. We've just showed how their aims are quite different from an economic standpoint, right, where China's had a lot more at stake, right? The $6 billion in lending that I talked to you about with Russia, comparatively, China at its peak has had about $30 billion outstanding, right? So the relationship has been a lot uh, more embedded. Uh, but Russia has been quite willing to take advantage of the geopolitical position uh, to try to uh, upend U.S. power. But right here you can see, even from a debt perspective, China's in yellow, Russia's in red. <laughs> so in terms of the overall indebtedness uh, that Russia is responsible for Venezuela, it's a very small piece. China's a larger piece, probably about 20%, but what this graph also shows is notwithstanding all of sort of the meme that we hear about debt trap diplomacy, where theoretically China goes in, purposely through cheap loans makes another country indebted and then ultimately is able to make equity plays such as they did in Sri Lanka with the port um, as a result of this uh, debt lending. 
Uh, what instead is more often happens is I think China's a rising power, learning to be a creditor, and as we talked about earlier, has made some mistakes in places like Venezuela, mispriced risks, didn't get the oil repayment it thought it would get, and as a result has deleveraged. But if you even look at the amount of debt that China's responsible for, something like financial markets right, in Wall Street account for about 50% of Venezuela's debt, right? So it's pretty hard empirically to make that debt trap kind of argument. Why ultimately in the Venezuela case, what Russia and China are doing is so important is that this is the state oil company. The blue is the cash flow, right? That effectively the state oil company in Venezuela gets it. It can reinvest in its own operations. The yellow and red are pre-commitments, right? Remember the lending agreements we talked about before, they have to promise oil is gonna be shipped so that they can deliver the loan proceeds, right? To China and Russia. That means the yellow and red account for pre-commitments to China and Russia of these lending agreements. That means you could see this blue is shrinking over time and the amount that they have to send back to China and Russia is increasing over time, particularly with US sanctions. So you could see that margin that these companies have right, within Venezuela, the state oil company is shrinking over time. Uh, so ultimately, why it's important, particularly the non-intervention policy that China is uh, basically advancing within the globe along with state-led capitalism, why it's important, and I remind you, China's scale is a lot larger than Russia, but these kind of issues may also be important for Russia eventually, is that you know, once you have these intricate financial ties and they're built up over time, and Venezuela starts to get indebted and you've made sort of bad investments, it's very difficult to unravel these investments. Um, and so even conditionality, as we all know it, is a product of the banking crisis during the 1980s in Latin America and elsewhere, where developed countries try to solve the problem of indebtedness. So I think before China and Russia, if they continue to pursue this model of non-intervention and heavy state lending internationally, the question is when there's indebtedness, how do they resolve it? Uh, so that's a key problem that both countries are gonna have to figure out over time. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your comments and questions. Okay, uh, John, you have the interesting and perhaps an unenviable task of trying to draw some common themes from this. Okay, thanks, Jeff. Um, so I, you know, I do have, I guess, the easier job here. I didn't have any homework. I didn't have to write anything. Um, but I did enjoy, and I highly recommend to all of you, each of these memos, um, very readable. And I think each of them, um, while commenting on what seems to be a strengthening Sino-Russo relationship, also have some important um, fault lines that they point out. And so I'd actually like to, to focus on a few of those. Um, I, I, at CSIS, I direct our Reconnecting Asia project, and so I spent a lot of time studying China's Belt and Road. That's, that's um, you know, the, the main lens through which I'm looking at a lot of this. Um, and I, I, I want to throw out some scenarios, actually, with sort of a policy audience in mind since we're in D.C., um, because I think it's, it, it's certainly striking that we see these images, um, everything from ice cream to arm sales, of this partnership, and that's very alarming to some in D.C., um, but I think all of us are asking, how deep is this? How lasting is it? So let me throw out three scenarios or stress tests, maybe, um, that we might consider in, in testing that proposition. How deep is this relationship? Um, so the first scenario is continued Chinese expansion into Central Asia. 
Um, each of these scenarios, by the way, I should say, are pretty general. We could tweak the parameters. You know, if we were at the War College, we'd want to get really, really, um, you know, have a, a colorful scenario with all of the assumptions laid out. But let me just be general for right now. So the first scenario is China's increased expansion into Central Asia. Um, I was struck in Hillary's memo that, you know, there's, yes, lots of discussion about the, um, the Russian-led Eurasian Economic Union and the Belt and Road being linked. Um, and yet, I think quite persuasively, you make the case that this could become a stumbling block for them. And so it's worth thinking about how might that happen, um, what forms might that take. Uh, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, if you had asked me that question three years ago, I would have said, well, eventually Chinese security forces are going to follow some of these investments and that's going to set off some alarms in Russia. They won't be able to dismiss this anymore as just friendly investment in their backyard. And yet now we have China appearing to set up border posts along the Tajik-Afghan border um, and actively maybe perhaps even running border security there. Certainly a common interest in, in you know, providing border security there um, with relation to Afghanistan. Um, but how much bigger might that security footprint grow um, and sort of what alarms might that set off? Right now, um, when you look at the Belt and Road and Russia's relationship to it, um, you know, the connectivity is actually quite limited still. Um, you know, the, there are a few uh, marquee energy projects, the Power of Siberia pipeline, um, you know, still a lot of energy trade but the transport linkages are still relatively small um, and economically not that important. And there's a much longer history of um, Russia and China announcing long lists of projects, you know, 90, 100 projects announced in 2008, I think, um, only which a handful actually end up getting implemented, let alone completed. And it seems, um, and this is, I think, something that Elizabeth commented on in her memo, it seems, it seems as if uh, at the same time they're wanting to exaggerate the strength of this partnership. They're actually scaling back their ambitions if you look at the project lists that they're putting out. So that there's something interesting there. And what type of connectivity might they be happy to have? Energy seems like it's a necessity for both of them. Um, transport, I don't know. It's a little bit, that's a little bit scarier. Um, it's interesting to see Russia experimenting with bringing on more Huawei equipment. Um, as we think about you know, um, technology, connectivity, and the networks of the future, maybe they don't have any good options and they figure someone's gonna spy on them, it might as well be the Chinese. Um, or maybe that's you know, Snowden's advice from um, somewhere in Russia. Um, so that, that's scenario one. We're thinking about you know, what would actually set those alarm bells off um, and you know, with, with the memory, as uh, Hillary mentioned, of the sort of belated objection to EU expansion in Eastern Europe and the Baltics, what, what might this look like? China's continuing to go in pretty heavily economically, security footprints following, what would it take? Um, the second scenario is an economic downturn. I think that's not too unrealistic. We're seeing already a lot of Belt and Road projects struggle, um, and that's been happening in a relatively forgiving global economy. Um, it's, worth, it's worth thinking about um, what sort of trade-offs they might face if there were more of the credit, um, credit crises um, amongst Belt and Road recipient countries. So this is something that Stephen talked about and I think very rightly pointed out that it's not just the recipient um, who bears the risk in these transactions. Debt trap diplomacy has been something that's been very in vogue in, in Washington um, and I think 
you know, a lot of it has been built off of a single case in Sri Lanka, um, which is kind of outside the scope of today, so I won't go there. Um, but I think it often ignores the agency of recipients um, and the risk to the lender. And so it's striking also if you look at the list of Belt and Road recipients who are potentially at risk from borrowing. Um, and this is a study that the Center for Global Development did last year. Um, of, of the list of eight who are at highest risk, three of them um, are Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Mongolia. Um, you know, not, not the same size as Venezuela, and so we could talk about the scope there. Um, but it's not, it's not um, I think, implausible to think about some of, those, um, some of those loans going bad. What if China wants to take non-economic payments? Um, would that set off alarms? Um, the third scenario that I, that I just wanted to throw out there is um, something that I think Elizabeth's memo does um, touch on quite a bit. And let's call this scenario a political transition or a passing of the, of the guard or the passing of the emperors. Um, you know, I, I've, I've kind of laughed as all of these photos have come up with, you know, sharing ice cream and, you know, uh, uh, going to, going to uh, make steamed buns and having birthday parties. But I think after reading your memo, it was the first time where I actually, I think I take this a little more seriously, that, that um, you know, maybe it's like the structural realism uh, that I had in school that I sort of dismissed this, but um, I think this friendship does matter. And um, it's, I think, after en enough birthday parties, we do have to take it seriously. Um, but that, as Elizabeth argues in her piece, does impose some constraints on, on the long-term um, stability of the relationship because it does still have this artificial flavor. Um, if you go to you know, a, Russia, a Russian or Chinese border town um, in the Far East, on the Chinese side, there'll be uh, shrubs of you know, a, a Russian bear and a, and a panda. Um, and, you know, but you don't see a lot of organic, um, you know, as much organic support as you see official vocal support for this. Um, and then again, that's also limited by some of the lack of you know, transport connections, deeper economic ties. Um, and you know, as, as I mentioned, you know, they seem to be scaling down some of those ambitions rather than pushing ahead with them and deepening their investment. Um, so those are three scenarios to think about, and I think it leaves us also with the question of what should the United States be doing in all of this? Um, I, think, I think it's fair to say that one of the factors that has been pushing these two partners together is the United States, um, both through sanctions and tariffs. And uh, so it, you know, is, should we be thinking about using the economic toolkit in a different way? Um, should we be thinking about changing our messaging? We call them out as competitors in our national security strategy. Um, does that help us or help them? Um, and then planning for the future, you know, as we call them out as competitors, should we be uh, putting into place plans? What would we do for each of those scenarios? Again, the China expansion, um, the economic downturn, and then the passing of the guard. So um, I'm, I'm going to leave it there and turn it back to you, Jeff. Okay, thanks, John. That was great. Um, lots of food for thought uh, on the panel. I don't know if any of uh, our presenters want to uh, respond or if we can just open it up to questions. Yeah. Okay, great. So let's take some questions. Uh, we have microphones going around. Uh, I'll recognize people. Uh, please wait for the microphone to come to you and when you get it, um, identify yourself, be brief, uh, and ask a question. Okay, so uh, right here in the back. Uh, thank you. Uh, Stefan de Spiegelaire, uh, the Hague Center for Strategic Studies. I have a question to all the panelists about how confident you are about the evidentiary base that we actually have 
about this relationship. I mean, we already have seen the contrast between very uh, data-heavy uh, presentation on the economic front, a more discursive uh, presentation of events on the other side. But it seems to me that, you know, ultimately, uh, we also see in the field that some people say there's much more less to this relationship than meets the eye. Others who say, no, 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 you know, there's actually more going on. And those people cherry pick the events that they adduce to uh, buttress their, their, their claims. But have, do we really know enough about this? Have we done our homework on the evidence behind all of this? Have we tried enough to match all these data sets that we have, not only the economic ones, but the military ones, the, the, the more text mining ones that we now have with respect to uh, reading the academic uh, literature, the, the, the newspaper literature? It seems to me that there's still a lot of evidence there that, that, that we as analysts have to unearth before we can start making claims about what's actually happening in this relationship, let alone to start saying what it means for policy, which ultimately is what we want to do, right? So are you confident about whether we know enough, really, about what's going on in, in, in this area? Um, and how could we improve that? question. I, I think one thing in, re in response to the question, I'm coming at it more from the economic than the, the geopolitical side of things. Uh, but even in my reading of some of the you know, security and policy discourse from that perspective, I think it's a mistake to tie China and Russia so closely together, right? I think there could be cooperation, there could be partnership, but I think their aims, uh, particularly in, in different uh, developing countries, can be quite different. And I think that's what we've seen in Venezuela. And I think that uh, there are opportunities, right? Uh, obviously, you know, the, 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 some of these opportunities between China and the United States would necessitate an easing of trade tensions, et cetera. But if you think of China and the United States interest in a place like Venezuela or elsewhere in Latin America, it's not that different, right? What China wants to do in terms of supplying infrastructure throughout Latin America, alternatively, we don't have companies and firms that are doing that kind of heavy in infrastructure, right? And so once you have that infrastructure, many different firms can benefit from that. And the United States could benefit from giving strategic incentives to our firms <laughs> in different areas to compete in the region, right? So I think that decoupling that relationship might help craft policy that is very contextual based upon the country. Uh, and in certain cases, it might be quite different what we do from a Chinese perspective than what we do in Russia perspective. Just as a last example, if you think of Venezuela, what Venezuela has been doing is trying throughout the last eight months, the opposition has been making overtures to China, to China repeatedly uh, that, hey, you have an economic stake here, you've dealt with opposition before, maybe we can kind of arrive at some kind of agreement. You don't see those same kind of overtures from the opposition to the Russian side, right? And so I think there are these fissures that even U.S. policy could take advantage of. Yeah, I think that's a good point about sources, because what we look at determines what, what we find. And um, I think that, that sometimes there's a tendency for people to consult their friends in one country or another who have certain perspectives. And so um, I think in my, in my own research, I read Russian and Chinese. I look at both sides. I look at the leadership statements, um, as well as the data in terms of uh, economic deals, weapons sales, and so on. Um, uh, but I think that there's a difference between how, what each country does in third areas and what their uh, interaction is on a bilateral basis. Because mm -hmm. I think it, it was um, very informative to know what, how the different strategies between, that Russia and China have in Venezuela. But I think you, there, there's sometimes an expectation 
expectation that because of this partnership, that Russia and China are going to act in an identical manner on all issues. And if, if you look at the U.S. and France, we are NATO allies for many years, but we don't act identically on every issue. And, and so uh, we have to keep in mind that Russia and China have different histories, trajectories, and they're going to act differently in different areas, but not let that distract us from understanding what what is motivating their bilateral interactions? Okay, I see. I see a lot of hands, so I'm going to try and um, let me take a couple of questions, and we'll let the panelists sort of pick and choose the ones they want. So first, uh, David. Yes, uh, David Abramson. Uh, I work at the State Department. Um, I want to follow up on this discussion about assessing the relationship. I'm just wondering, as we look at possible future factors, the, the, the strength, the strongest leg of the relationship, if we look at it political, economic, and military, it's the political. Um, and if we, there's a scenario, a situation, for example, where China were to crack down in Hong Kong, um, and at the same time, there's perhaps growing a sense of failures and a lot of the Belt and Road uh, initiative uh, uh, um, projects. To what extent will that change China's global approach and then, and then affect its relationship with Russia, perhaps strengthening the, uh, the, 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 the part of the relationship that's already strong and moving beyond the economic, which Belt and Road is just highlights the disparities between them. Okay, uh, up here. Um, thank you. Uh, my, my name is Dr. Rakhal Malik. I'm a Fulbright Scholar currently at the Seeger School, uh, Centre at the uh, GW. Um, specifically, yeah. <laughs> Um, specifically, I'm working on exactly these issues, uh, less so Russia, but uh, specifically, what are the geostrategic ambitions? Do they converge between Russia and China, or where do they diverge, and what are those fault lines? You, you explained this briefly, but nobody really talked about uh, what their ambitions really are. What do they uh, want to achieve, and what, what are the end goals of each, and how do they align or not? Okay, and then one more question right here. Jeff Stacy, formerly the State Department. Just uh, several quick comments, questions, really rapid fire. Why aren't we talking about these two in terms of all the ways in which they're ready to drop each other in a second when it's convenient for the other? They are not nearly the partners that we, by conventional wisdom, assume that they are. They have legions of conflicting interests, and they have an interest in as soon as it suits them, don't they? That's a question of even repartnering with the U.S. temporarily to stymie the other. The last presentation, doesn't China also often have very onerous long-term, medium-term constraints and conditions on its aid recipients? If you look at Pakistan and many, many others across the world, Latin America, Africa, and finally, on the discussing, the discussant um, sort of wrap-up, 
shouldn't we be completely, we're in Washington, D.C., sounding the alarm. These two countries have committed major cyber war against our country, and they have been successful. Together, they've knocked us down several pegs in the international order. We should be all out going after this. We have an administration that can't get almost anything right, yet they've put these two in their national security strategy and defined them as our number two, one and two competitors. What are we doing? Okay, um, that one's maybe a little outside the scope of the panel, but feel free to take it if you want. Um, why don't we just go down and feel free to um, pick any of the, the questions that were asked that you want to touch on. So. Well, then maybe I'll start with the first question, which is, you know, how do certain events affect this relationship going forward? I think, if anything, the way I tried to structure the memo was to think about what might derail it, what were some of the extant factors that could destabilize the relationship. Failure of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, crackdown in Hong Kong, you, you gave those two examples. I think the crackdown in Hong Kong actually would strengthen the relationship in the sense that they both would be able to give each other some protection in terms of their shared ideas and norms about uh, non-interference and um, issues of national sovereignty and that human rights don't belong as part of, uh, you know, the business of international organizations. So I don't see that as a factor, although um, it certainly could be very destabilizing for President Xi, but I'm just thinking in terms of that relationship, I think probably President Putin would have his back and support him in um, the UN Security Council. The failure of Belt and Road Initiative, yes, I think a lot of this relationship is predicated upon Russia's need for capital and China's ability to provide it. And so if the funds dried up, this will change things a lot. And that's not just true for the China-Russia relationship. This is true for China's relationship around the world. And I know that we do focus on Sri Lanka. We do think about, especially in the West, this issue of, of a debt trap. To me, I find this to really be extraordinary, especially coming from the West, because when I, the last book that I wrote in 2018 was very much looking at the importance for the race for FDI as a development strategy for former communist countries that really drove the transition for decades. And what does that mean? It, you know, when it comes to capital from the West, FDI was this path for development and growth and all good things. And the fact that there's dependency or dependent market economies that emerged, all of this was really much, uh, much weaker in terms of the statement in the West. But in the West is actually becoming very interested in this narrative of a debt trap created by the Belt and Road Initiative. So all of a sudden FDI is not this glorious thing that somehow or another has been extremely useful for you know, prosperity and growth, that we just need to get foreign capital in there. Innovation and capital are the source of development, and yet there's a kind of hypocrisy, or at least a double standard, in thinking about that capital coming from China. But I, nonetheless, I do think that this is the reason China's economic growth, its um, ability to invest around the world, has enabled it to develop the, these relationships. If that dries up, if the approach changes, I do see that as significant impact on those relationships, including the relationship with Russia. I'm not sure that the failure of the BRI would be would be a, um, a, a source of sadness for Russia because they, they see that as a, I mean, they're, they're not that involved with it. The only projects that are really occurring are in the Arctic with the Yamal and Yamal II. Um, but I think what, would ha what happens in Central Asia in terms of um, leadership succession, uh, political stability, 
the future of Afghanistan, all of this uh, will affect, um, as, you know, as Jonathan mentioned, and what, would, what would China do in case there's a renewed um, border instability owing to the situation in Afghanistan? Is it going to bring in troops? What would Russia, I mean, there are all kinds of scenarios that, that we could look at. Um, but I, but I think what China and Russia have managed to do is to remain neutral on issues of priority to the partner, like the situation in Crimea, uh, for example, um, um, or the South China Sea, and, and try to agree where they can and to leave, this speaks to the conflicting interest question, leave those conflicting interests aside. For the time being, they've been able to do that. Whether they can continue to do that uh, is a question. And in terms of strategic ambitions, I think they both want to have a place that they consider deserving in the international system. Uh, Russia having the baggage of being an ex-superpower and China being a rising power. Um, but they see their regional, I think it's the regional ambitions where they see that they see their own role differently and where we have the conflicting ambitions sometimes. But I think that there's, that there's another set of priorities that brings them together in terms of the way they want this order to develop. And this is a product, I think, of the economic crisis of 2008 where they saw the West being incapable of managing the global economy and wanting to create another model in which they are bigger participants. Um, and we see commonalities in terms of their approach to cyber, in terms of how they want to use that uh, going forward, in terms of regulating cyberspace and the use of it um, for their own goals. Just to pick up on that note, I think it's quite interesting. You just mentioned the global financial crisis and what that does strategically to China and Russia. If you think of China Development Bank, which I shared some statistics with you earlier, strategically what they were doing prior to the global financial crisis was trying to acquire stakes in Western banks. <laughs> so they were embracing the Western model of finance, and with the global financial crisis, they learned, I think, that they had to diversify and take a chance on doubling down on the state model. So I think that's one important thing to uh, think of. Um, now within that model, I know there's a question in terms of the costs. Obviously we have limited time. Uh, you know, in the part of the broader book project, I deal with those costs. And effectively where you get more macro flexibility, you're able to spend more on what you want when you get these loans. Uh, we already talked about the debt sort of, uh, you know, the, the potential debt costs. Uh, there's also costs from a commercial standpoint, right? Uh, the question of are you creating new dependency in these developing countries, right? Because if China is essentially using these loans to buy more commodities and then also using these loans to increase the amount of machinery that it sells to these re regions through these debt contracts, well, then there's a question of, okay, well, are you impeding these regions from being able to diversify into industry? And are you kind of renewing risks in the commodity sector? And that's sort of a very real question, as well as the middle income trap question, right? Are these countries, when they take loans, just like previously from the United States or elsewhere, 
is there a risk of not being able to develop the way they envision uh, and ultimately uh, you know, having economic stagnation over time? Uh, so a couple other kind of quick notes, uh, I'll go through them quickly. Uh, one is the failure of the BRI debt trap, and then finally, what US policymakers should do. In terms of the failure of the BRI and what that would mean, I think this is quite significant, right? Because it's easy to think about how the Eurasian Economic Union has similarities and perhaps even complementarities uh, with the BRI if you think of it being successful. If you think of it as being something where there's a tremendous amount of debt distress, right, or increasing levels of indebtedness, then there's an issue of how do you resolve that indebtedness. Uh, China's dealing with this issue. They've already kind of published at their past BRI forum a new debt sustainability framework. At this point, it looks a lot like the IMF framework. We don't know if they're going to implement that multilaterally or bilaterally. That's an outstanding question. But there is a question, is Russia okay with that kind of approach to debt, uh, sort of uh, indebtedness? And there's also a question, if you think of some of the cases today that have gone awry in terms of lending, where have those countries gone, the Ecuadors, the Pakistans, et cetera? They're going to the IMF, right? Uh, also raising the question, is Russia okay with that kind of uh, way to resolve the debt issue, right? Um, in terms of the debt trap, just a quick note on that as well. You know, I, I, I'm really a, a strong proponent of what, as I mentioned earlier, what happened with China is a creditor trap rather than a debtor trap, right? You lend without conditions, at least from a macro standpoint, you're putting the onus on the country to invest well, to make good investments so they can pay you back. Venezuela didn't do that. China struggled to get their oil collateral back. This is a country too. China spent billions of dollars on sort of soft power public relations globally. Why on earth would they purposely get a country to be in debt, right? The optics on that are horrible throughout the region, right? Then everyone else says, okay, well, if China lends to you, you have this risk of indebtedness from a development soft power state-to-state -state cooperation standpoint, south-to-south cooperation, that's not good for China, right? So I think that there's a whole part of that debt trap argument where not, there's not agency with China and there's not agency with really the developing countries. So I think it's a very faulty argument and we should be careful of it. Then the question is, from a policymaking standpoint, uh, what should the U.S. do, right? Uh, to the extent to which you know we have, as John was talking about, the possibility of economic crisis or debt distress within the region. Uh, what can the U.S. do to help uh, solidify and strengthen developing countries? I think what the uh, United States policymakers could do is think of uh, looking at the ways that within a country, right, Latin America, Africa, East Asia, can you help? enhance the governance framework right, to make things more transparent. One quick example, China has often take the state-to-state -state lending posture, but when that has gone awry, increasingly China is using private procurement, right? uh, open bidding. Right? They're competing in this way. To the extent that the United States and other developed countries could help developing countries enhance this framework, that might also uh, allow developing countries to get better uh, outcomes, right, from this financing, right, because it could be channeled through a private sector more from a more transparent perspective. Okay, good. I think that worked well. Let's do the same thing where we take a couple of questions and then go. Um, okay, so over here. Uh, Sarah Merle, Georgia Institute of Technology. In the context of increasing military cooperation, how do um, Russian submarine capabilities in the Arctic factor into potential tensions between Russia and China over um, the race for sea routes there? Thank you. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, Professor Yu. Uh, you've been from um, Winterberg University, Ohio. I have a question about the nature of uh, Sino-Russian rivalry that Professor Apple discussed in your presentation, particularly in uh, Central Asia. Uh, what do you think of the increasingly complex situation now in Central, in Central Asia, particularly operation of SCO uh, after India and Pakistan joined this organization? Actually, it seemed to make it SEO less efficient, though it looks impressive. On the other hand, there are other developments like uh, the uh, Belt and Road, like a Russian version of the Greater Eurasian Union, seeming to transcend SEO. And last, if not the least, there is a rise of the uh, Central Asians uh, themselves. For example, last year's March, for the first time, five stands. Uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, they organized uh, a purely Central Asian informal summit in uh, Astana. And this is the, it's very interesting. You, you start to see SCO being torn apart by super uh, SCO forces like a Belt and Road, and then the forces below, and then the complications of India and Pakistan, they, still in the state of war. And SEO actually, in the word of a Russian scholar, becomes hibernated. So it's no longer a, a just a rivalry okay. or cooperation. So what do you see? This is a rather complicated relationship, despite the beautiful relationship between Putin and Xi Jinping. This okay. goes to Professor, uh, um, the, the individual relationship. Thank you. OK, thanks. And we can take one more question this round. Uh, Okay, Harley. Thank you. Uh, Harley Walzer, Georgetown University. Uh, Liz, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you heard on the ground, since you were just in both China and the Russian Far East. Uh, you know, th this relationship is a great test of whether top-down is more important than bottom-up. Uh, you know, I, I keep thinking of... Uh, Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin in the Library of Congress embracing each other and talking about the great relationship the two countries are going to have. George Bush looking into Putin's eyes. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly, uh, Putin and Xi have a great relationship. Whether that spreads to the lower levels, whether it's sustainable for a longer term, is a really big question. Uh, and you know, we're going to get a really good test of the strategic partnership very soon. Uh, Putin had a meeting in August where he told the mobile phone providers that they had to find a different bandwidth for 5G because the military uses the bandwidth they want. Uh, that means they can't use international equipment. The only exception to that is Huawei, uh, which doesn't have enough. Are they going to, in this climate, change their whole production plan to meet Russia's needs? That's going to be interesting to watch. Okay, why don't we go in the opposite order this time? So, Steve, if you want to start. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I guess in closing, uh, basically just wanted to highlight, uh, you know, probably moving forward, I think what's really key to keep in mind in terms of both China and Russia, uh, in terms of the economic and financial ties in third-party developing countries, um, is sort of what are they trying to use those ties for? And I think what's important, what I've tried to underscore today, is that China has a lot greater state 
economically within the current financial and economic system. And it has to kind of tread very lightly in order to try to deal with a lot of these sensitive issues in terms of indebtedness, uh, in terms of development, uh, because in, indeed it sort of has a stake in the system and a stake in its reputation as being able to help other developing countries. Uh, comparatively, uh, from what I can gather with the way that Russia has been approaching uh, third country uh, parties, it's a lot more geopolitical, right? Uh, it's a lot more designed, particularly as we've seen in Venezuela, to upend uh, U.S. power, right? There's a commercial element to it. Certainly, Russia has benefited from getting oil fields, et cetera, in Venezuela and this kind of equity. But there's also, compared to China, a lot stronger uh, geopolitical uh, narrative that's associated with this. And I think it's important to differentiate, uh, certainly, right? We learn a lot through their bilateral ties, but it's also important to the extent to which we care about what's going on regionally within various developing countries to differentiate how the two actors are approaching these developing countries. So from my sample of Latin America, uh, you know, undoubtedly it's very different what the two actors are trying to accomplish. So I'm, I'm still trying to process all of the impressions from uh, from this time overseas. But on the, in terms of the Belt and Road, uh, I heard some interesting perspectives in in China. One is that there is not enough accountability. That the focus seems to be on project uh, promotion rather than implementation and assessment. And so I don't know that China would intentionally get into uh, debt trap uh, or try to ensnare countries in debt trap situations. But this could be the result of the, the, the inadequate planning and follow-up that, that goes on there. And, and there's concern that since this is uh, Xi Jinping's uh, signature initiative, that um, people are going to associate debt trap with it, and he will be remembered for debt trap diplomacy, not for the, the great uh, Belt, and, Belt and Road project. And average people seem puzzled by the initiative, wondering why are we spending so much money in all of these countries? Um, but in, in terms of uh, Vladivostok um, findings, there's an institute there that does public opinion surveys of Russian attitudes in the Far East uh, towards uh, neighboring countries. And certainly, uh, views of China have become much more favorable in recent years. And the view of the US, which used to be favorable in, in that part of Russia, has declined markedly. Um, this being said, you see fewer Chinese in, in that part of Russia nowadays. You see a lot of Koreans, you see a lot, you see Japanese, you see some Chinese tourists, but if you go to the markets now, you see Central Asians working there, not, Chi not Chinese really. Um, and uh, there's, I think there's theoretical interest in projects with China, but when it comes down to actually implementing them, there are a lot of problems um, reflecting issues on, on, on both sides. Um, one bright area is perhaps agriculture, where uh, suddenly China needs more soybeans and uh, Russia produces soybeans. And so there's been a lot of enthusiasm for perhaps um, enhancing agricultural cooperation between Russia and China, and that involves the Russian Far East. And uh, there's a grain terminal that's going to be built uh, in Primorsky Krai. And, and so there is some action on the ground. Some of the action on the ground is not positive. Some of it is improving. In China, uh, there, there are many different viewpoints about Russia. 
Chinese love Putin, but Russia, it's not so clear how people feel about it. Because Russia is seen as a difficult partner in general, uh, although a necessary one, because China doesn't have many friends. And so ru without Russia, China would be very lonely. Um, and, and so, but what I found in talking to Russia experts is there are generational differences, that younger, younger experts seem to be much more critical, and older experts, I think, possibly remembering the bad old days of the conflict are happy, the relations are improved, um, but the younger ones are thinking, is this the partner that China should have? Why are, why are we in, involved in this? I don't know that that really, um, affects the leadership circles because they're populated by older folks. Um, and the leaders themselves have Russian experience. Um, but, but it is food for thought. What, what will generational change, talking about our scenarios, generational change in both countries, having more Western educated people in Russia also and in China, mean for, uh, for them in the future? Well, one of the, the more interesting comments I heard was from someone who thought that Russia was actively trying to undermine China's positions in Central Asia through influence campaigns pointing to China as a threat. And uh, I thought that was, that was very, he, he couldn't give me specific evidence, possibly because of where he got this information, but uh, I thought that this was an interesting viewpoint, even if not based on evidence, that, that somehow, uh, and that's why I concluded, as I did, that Russia could be an, obstruct, an obstructive factor as well as a disruptive one. And it has certain tools in its toolkit, despite the, the uh, asymmetries in power. And um, the, there is this undercurrent of, of, uh, of difficulty in terms of the, the actual interactions they have on the ground that is somewhat disconnected from the uh, normative uh, push that has strengthened this relationship. And as we look forward at it, I think we just have to keep all of these pieces in mind and not, uh, as our first questioner asked us, not just focus on one data set as opposed to the other. Well, there's so many things to touch upon. I, you know, Harley, I think your point is excellent. Your, you know, the questions to really think about what's going on at the level from, you know, below pressures from below the mass level, because certainly, you know, the focus of what I was doing in the memo is looking at this relationship and trying to interpret the relationship. But I don't think there's the pathos, there's the uh, soft power efficacy that you might want to go along with building a relationship in the long run. So. Again, the focus was at the elite level and uh, government to government, but I do imagine, you know, sometimes people point to how many um, Russians are studying in China, how many Chinese young people are studying in Russia, what's, you know, in terms of that in, relative to the numbers in the United States. So there are certain things that show that despite the tensions at the very top level, there's going to be soft power, there's going to be cultural influences that may um, sort of slow down a rapprochement or this relationship going forward. And you'd have to look at, you know, the kind of work or, or you know, the, the on-the-ground work to have a better sense of that. Um, but it's a really interesting question. But on the elite level, to talk about, you know, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, I, I think that's a great example of managing a very tense, uh, potential situation, if the idea was to try to co-manage for Russia and China, 
Central Asia and recognizing rather than being dismissive of Russian interests in that area, it was a step in the right direction. Now, if you continue to expand it, is the effort uh, diluted? Is the efficacy diluted? Probably so. But I do think that what Russia has really benefited from and what China has managed particularly well is the sensitivity of being the um, junior partner in this asymmetric relationship and recognizing what has derailed U.S.-Russian relations at many points. It's this uh, indifference to Russian concerns, Russian interests, and China has managed to handle that much better than the United States has in many occasions. So I do find that um, that is just one example where um, you know, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as a way to try to um, bring in Russian interests into that region and then beyond. I don't have that much to say about uh, technology in the Arctic. I could point you to Robert English's work, who I thought made a very interesting case about just the weakness of Russian technology in the Arctic. The icebreakers are very incapable. The, the difficulty of rescue operations. So I don't, I don't work on the Arctic, but I know that there's some good work out there trying to understand in a technocratic sense, the, tech, you know, the, the advances that are there so far and just how far there is still to go in terms of really having viable commercial routes in the Arctic. It's not around the corner, according to Robert English, for example. Okay, we have a little bit of time left, so if there are a couple more questions, we may take those. I'll go in the back and then Steve and then we'll wrap it up. I'm sorry for those people sitting over here. I can't really see past the podium. Yeah. Thank you. I, I'm Zachary Kim uh, from Asian Development Bank, and um, actually I'm from South Korea, and uh, we've been talking about the problems, uh, uh, the relationship between Russia and China would have um, uh, effect on on Russia, like including Central Asia. But um, um, I was thinking about the conflict between um, North and South Korea, or uh, conflict in um, South China Sea. So um, there will be some implications on other regional problems. Um, the relationship between um, China and Russia, uh, uh, w I mean, my question is, would there be other implications on other regional problems, like South China Sea problem or North Korea problem, something like that? Okay. Uh, Stephen Blank, American Foreign Policy Council. Uh, my question is to Stephen Kaplan. Um, what have you seen with regard to Russian and Chinese policies in, in regard to the issues you discussed in Africa? Uh, is there a difference? Is there a convergence or parallelism? Okay, so uh, China-Russia investment in Africa, and then this question of the impact of the Sino-Russian relationship on regional conflicts in Asia. I guess I'll pick up with, uh, and I'll pick up with the question of China and Africa. Uh, first thing is a departure point. I think what we've seen uh, within Latin America is essentially China investing with at least two different models, right? One that's state to state, 
and one that's more market oriented depending upon the context that it meets, right? So there are countries like Argentina and Brazil where it tends to invest more in the private sector. Countries like Ecuador and Venezuela where it tends to be more state to state, right? So just like through their domestic development, they use tools incrementally from both the private and public sector to develop, we're seeing them do this similar kind of thing, I think, within Latin America and Africa. Um, I think as a first mover in Africa, just like the first mover in Latin America, they use state-to-state -state relations and what was often sort of extractive energy sectors. Um, but then I think in both countries, as the relationship has developed, uh, we've seen sort of more economic activity. Again, I think the way that China approaches it is using these loans to spur greater economic activity, right? So there's even been probably much more so in Africa relative to Latin America, investment in things like manufacturing even, right, in certain countries. Um, comparatively, I haven't looked as closely at what Russia has been doing uh, in Africa, but I know even in a place like Latin America, the scale, right, uh, of what China does relative to Russia is so much larger, right? So I'd imagine that that scale particularly is even larger <laughs> uh, within Africa, right? So I think that China is much more of a player uh, in Africa, uh, at least from a financial and economic perspective. I forgot about the Arctic question earlier. Um, I don't think technology is the source of uh, differences between China and Russia there. I think Russia sees itself as an Arctic state and China is the newcomer. And so I think the tensions have to do with under what circumstances is China going to participate and will Russia still be um, in charge. Um, the questions about uh, conflicts. Um, the North Korea case is, is interesting because both Russia and China have, have certain common positions that they've made at the UN and so on. Um, I think Russia's position is slightly different because they, uh, they have a, a big stake in the settlement of the, the tensions on the peninsula so that they can move forward with their transportation and energy plans for integration with the Far East. China, I think now, um, considering tensions are high with the US, uh, could tolerate more tension on the peninsula as long as the conflict doesn't break out. In terms of the South China Sea, uh, this is an area where they've agreed to disagree because Russia has strong partnership with Vietnam and uh, energy interests in that area. And so what Putin said is we object to having the arbitration court decide, but they didn't say we support China's position. So it's an area like Crimea where they have, uh, they have been neutral. Okay, we are just about at three o'clock, so I think we're gonna have to wrap up to let the other panel come in here. Uh, please join me again in thanking all of our participants.